Most Awakened Podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reed. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. All right. How are you doing today, Britt? Good. How are you, Bill? Excellent. Looks like we've got 10 people here already watching, and uh, I'm excited. Today, I, I wanted to talk about consent, but before we jump into that, is there anything on your mind? Anything cool happening in your world? Oh, you caught me off guard. Um, no, not really. Just trying to keep afloat as a mom of four, so this would be the time of the year where moms are pulling out their hair, making Valentine's Day boxes, and giving up, and having glue all over the table. So I'm deep in that mess. So I'm glad I have this little space in the afternoon where I get to have these really fun adult conversations. And then I go back to glue guns and glitter. And that's kind of what's going on over here. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. So uh, today we want to talk about consent and I'm trying to fix my camera just a little bit here. We were panicking a little bit behind the scenes, trying to get things off and running. And uh, this topic's been on my mind a lot uh, lately, Britt. And and I'm aware of all these facets we're going to get into today. Uh, you just sent me a podcast last night that my wife and I laid in bed and listened to, and it brought up a lot of things for the two of us to kind of consider. But I thought I'd, I'd start um, in the two areas that are kind of spelled out. There's legal ramifications for consent. And uh, the first one is medical, medically, you know, anytime there's a, you're dealing with some type of medical care or procedure, consent's involved. But even in the medical field, I mean, it's, it's kind of understood that you have to have informed consent as a doctor with a patient, correct? Correct, yeah. Yeah, and but even there, you're kind of left to whatever that doctor's perception is of what works and what doesn't work. But at least there is some spelling out that uh, the consent has to happen. When I, I looked up medical con- consent, here's what it said. It said, informed consent is a process of communication between you and your healthcare provider that often leads to agreement or permission for care, treatment, or services. Every patient has the right to get information and to ask questions before procedures and treatment. If adult patients are mentally able to make their own decisions, medical care cannot begin unless they give informed consent. The informed consent process makes sure that your healthcare provider has given you information about your condition along with testing and treatment options before you decide what to do. And uh, I was thinking in my own life, I've got, I've got four kids and I always want to be careful not to break confidences there. But one of my kids had some emotional issues and has always kind of had those. And it's been, it's been at times a real battle for our family. And there was one situation where this child had a sort of panic attack that led to some uh, self-harm type stuff. And so I ended up having to get this child, put them in a vehicle, take them to uh, the hospital. And in the process of getting to the hospital and letting them know what's going on and what kind of things were going through this child's head and the things that they were saying about their life and what they were going to do, um, their their treatment plan was essentially like, we're going to put her in an ambulance. We're going to take her up to, to Salt Lake City. We're going to um, you know, put her in some sort of treatment program. And you got to make a decision here in, you know, three minutes. You got three minutes to decide. We can't, we can't wait. And 
I needed more time than that. I, I needed to be able to sit for an hour and kind of process what this was going to look like because it it had lots of steps and it required a lot of time. And I wasn't convinced it was the right decision. And I just ended up telling the the lady who was pressing me with so much, what I would call almost coercion. And we'll get into talking about that as we get through some of these parts. But I finally said, I'm just not going to do that. This There isn't a medical emergency here in this moment. And you're really not giving me time to process and think about it. It ended up being the right decision. We ended up going back home essentially and things sort of resolved themselves. And this child is actually doing really well today. Um, and I'm glad I made the decision I did. But even in the medical field, these these things don't quite work out in real time the way they should. Um, yeah. So medical consent is one of the first areas in our society where we have, you know, a practice in law that you have to have informed consent. So it's one of the, you know, the first areas where this is really strong. But what we're finding is that unless it's something that you've practiced, you don't really know if you do know to how to say no until you're in that situation. And so what we're finding is that uh, because we obviously have this trust for authority, and especially if you're engaged in religion, um, there's going to be this trust of authority. And you really don't know if you have, um, if you're able to say no, unless you practice that. And so you have to, like, if you're going to the doctor or you're going with a child, it's actually really um, encouraged now that it's not just enough to have the paperwork where you have to sign that, you know, informed consent. You have to practice with your children or practice with your even adult children. I'd like a second opinion or tell me more about the research. I'd like to think about it and I will get back to you. These things have to be practiced and part of your language and lexicon so that you can use that tool when you need to. Because what we're finding is that if you don't model how to deny consent or delay consent or I'll think about it kinds of things, then we you, we just don't even have the language to be able to, to consent. And so we're finding that it's just not enough. And a great example of this that I was just thinking of uh, when you were talking about your example is the U United States gymnastics team. You know, they have, they had signed all the paperwork for informed consent, but there's this uh, culture in gymnastics that you have coaches and you have um, doctors that they're there for you. They're there to support you. And then we find out later just this, this massive, you know, sexual uh, assault and these girls were really struggling and really realizing, oh, I consented to some of this, but I didn't know what I was consenting to. And I didn't know that there were other options. This wasn't really fully educated consent. I just trusted this person. And so even with something like we actually have informed consent and you have to sign your name and do all this paperwork, um, unless it's something that you practice, uh, you know, it's still something that you can get stuck with when you're in that moment and you have to decide what to do. If you haven't practiced, I'd like a second opinion. Then you don't know that you have, you don't know that you're really able to say no. You're muted, Bill. In, in many ways, this medical consent is a formality, right? Like here's the doc, sign here. And very rarely, even in our own personal lives, do we take the time to read all the fine print and see what's being said. Um, and as you're pointing out, I mean, just the ability to ask for a pause or say, if that's the way you're going to rush me, it's a no. Um, it does. It does take practice. And the systems that we've grown up in, nobody really taught me how consent works. I've had to go and be curious enough and interested enough in my own personal growth to understand that principle inside and out. And really only in the last three or four years have I really kind of figured out how it works. And, and maybe even today I'll get something wrong in how, we're, how we conversate about it. But there is the medical consent the, the second one I wanted to talk about was research. 
I remember taking psychology classes in college and uh, in those classes, it was shown like the history of doing studies on people, the history of doing experiments, the history of doing um, these things. I forget what the, the one, I should have looked it up what the one's name was, but where they essentially got people to see somebody behind the glass and then the doctor would tell them to torture the person and they would hit the button and shock them. And as long as there was an authority in the room telling you to push the button, you would do it. Like most people would cave into the pressure and would do it. And there are so many experiments through time, uh, studies done, where before consent was really a thing within research, where you essentially had the freedom to traumatize people and there was no check and balance to what you could do. And so people would walk away with real harm being done. And so at some point along the way within research, uh, legally and from a legal standard, there was also informed consent to some degree. Some research can still be done with a double blind, for instance. You think you're going in for one thing, what they're actually trying to find out is another. Um, but there are parameters on that and the type of things that can be done and the type of um, misdirection that can be used is limited and, and can't be something that's ex an extreme amount of trauma or harm being done to you. Um, on the research side, the thing I, I read that I wanted to read here was the requirement to obtain the legally effective informed consent of individuals before involving them in research is one of the central protections provided for under the HHS regulations. They called it CFR uh, 45 CFR part 46. This requirement is uh, founded on the principle of respect for persons. One of the three ethical principles governing human subjects uh, in research described in the uh, was described in the Belmont report, the principle of respect for persons requires that individuals be treated as autonomous agents and that the rights and welfare of persons with diminished autonomy be appropriately protected. Uh, any thoughts on the research side of things? Because those are the two formal ends, and then we'll get into kind of some real life application. Yeah, so you brought up it's the Milgram experiment, very famous experiment, and uh, and uh, what we learned is that we are really hardwired. So we're we're tribal creatures, right? And we've talked about that on this podcast. Yeah. And uh, but not only are we tribal, we are hierarchical, right? Uh, we're socially hierarchical. We're kind of wired for that as the unique chimps that we are. And so when someone walks in with a lab coat. You know, we do have that instant kind of uh, vulnerability to trust and to um, to consent. And so that is why it's extra important uh, now in terms of research that people really understand what they're consenting to. And then medically that people really understand what they're consenting to and the invitation that you have to practice these things or else our tendency as humans is just to look around and say, what is required of me socially in this moment? Or are you higher up than me on this hierarchy? So I'm going to believe you. That's our tendency. And so we have to be aware of our own tendencies and kind of claim our autonomy in order to really have a good sense of individual consent in various aspects of our lives. Ooh, love it. Love it. Um, yeah. My, the one thing I took away from those psychology courses in dealing with research was that whenever you're asked to be in some sort of study, you should always assume on the front end that what they tell you they're looking for is not the thing they're looking for <laughs> yeah. because that would mess up the results. And so whatever it is they're having you do, they're actually looking for some other answer to some other question that you weren't told. And so always, always be aware that there's uh, there's a mind game going on uh, in much of that kind of research. Mm -hmm. uh, the next one we wanted to hit on was sexual. And this one is, this one's complicated and messy. We, 
we used to live by a standard that yes means yes and no means no. But as you and I both are well aware, oftentimes yes doesn't really mean yes. And um, the, the thing I wrote down here was sexual consent is an agreement to participate in sexual activity. Before being sexual with anyone, you need to know if they want to be sexual with you too. It's also important to be honest with your partner about what you want and don't want. Consenting and asking for consent are all about seeing your personal bound, sorry, setting your personal boundaries and respecting those of your partner and checking in if things aren't clear. Both people must agree to sex every single time for it to be consensual. Without consent, sexual activity, including oral sex, genital touching, uh, and vaginal or anal penetration is sexual assault or rape. And um, I don't know if it was you that put this in. I came across this, this idea of fries. And uh, if you can remember, if you can start off with fries, like French fries, uh, F, freely given, R, reversible, I, informed, E, enthusiastic. And I want to talk about that for a moment when we get there. S, specific. And um, there is this video on the internet that talks about sexual consent in the same way that you would give consent for whether you would have tea or not. And the video's beautiful. I won't, we won't play it here, but I would absolutely suggest it as a, uh, as a way to enter the conversation and begin to understand kind of the complexities. But as I think you made note of, even, even the tea idea doesn't really, doesn't really cover all the bases. Your thoughts? Yeah. So, so this video about making tea, and for those who haven't seen it, it's just this brief video. It'd be really good to show like teenagers that if you're making a cup of tea uh, and you're mad, this is an analogy for uh, sexual consent. Would you like a cup of tea? No, thanks. I don't. Okay. Then, then you don't force it and make a big deal out of it or whatever. It's like that song. What's that awful Christmas song where it's like, I really can't stay. And it's like the whole time. Hey, he's baby, trying to it's cold outside. <laughs> Just, Oh, I don't want a cup of tea. Great. I'm not going to make you a cup of tea. None of this, like what's in my drink kind of stuff, you know, yeah. <laughs> none of that going on. Uh, but I've heard multiple sex therapists uh, talk about that. The one issue that they had with this tea video, that's really popular right now about, you know, would you like a cup of tea or not? And if you say you want a cup of tea and then you decide not to drink it, that's okay. And it goes into all these examples of consent. But there was one part of the video where they say, um, would you like a cup of tea? And the person goes, I'm not sure. And in that scenario, in the video, the person continues to make tea, even though the person says, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. And so in a sexual content, that would be, so you're imagining now, uh, let's just say a man who's trying to pursue a woman sexually, and he's trying to say, you know, are you into this? Do you want to go to the bedroom or whatever he's saying? And she says, I don't know. That's not permission to keep making the tea. That's it. Right. She's not saying yes. Right. Yeah. And so what we're what we're starting to see is that we first kind of understood consent as just saying, no, I don't I don't want a cup of tea. No means no. And that is a great place to start. But what we're realizing is that what um, is great about consent is and a way to rethink it is instead of thinking about this tea example and and do you want tea? Yes or no. You're thinking of it as building a castle together. You're consenting to build something together. And over time, this castle has rooms and hallways that you've built together. And so sometimes the power difference or the dynamics doesn't allow for a hard no. So it's really important to focus on consent isn't just not no. Consent is yes. So if you say, would you like a cup of tea? And they say, I'm not sure. 
in a sexual consent, you know, situation, that's when you stop making the tea because they haven't consented to, to building that with you. And, and so it's really important to focus on what is the yes. And this is really common in other parts of our lives, right? If you think about health, you can make a list of all the no's, right? I shouldn't do this and I shouldn't do this. But anyone who's like a physical therapist, someone who's in really good health is saying, yeah, but what are you saying yes to? Like, what are you building with your health? What are you, what are you doing? And that's what consent is, is it's not just what you're saying no to. It's what are you choosing to say yes to with another person and to kind of reframe it in that way. Yeah, it's what you're assenting to, right? It's what you're like, like you're going above and beyond. Like again, if we go back to these fries, it's freely given. There isn't coercion. You mentioned the Christmas song, "Hey baby, it's cold outside." That's coercion. She is clearly saying no over and over again, and you're constantly using some sort of scare tactic to try to get somebody to agree. And it can be very subtle. Mm-hmm. It can be uh very uh blatant and mm-hmm. and um explicit. But Regardless, if you're trying to trick somebody or you're trying to manipulate somebody or you're trying to shame somebody into doing something, it's not it's not real. Uh, the other one here was reversible. At any point, just because someone says yes, that person has a right at any moment to change their mind and go, no, I no longer want to do this. And um, often in this world, we kind of take people who say yes and we say, well, you said yes. Now you're obliged to go through with whatever it is. And it can be in any arena, not necessarily sexual, but it is. it seems in the sexual arena, there's so much room for deep harm and uh, people should have a right to, to exit out of an agreement at any point. Yes mm-hmm. is only yes for the moment that it is given and people can change their mind at any time. Um, I've had so many times that I've gone to buy a car and uh, committed to something, you know, committed to whatever part of the, the process and suddenly the process changes and I don't feel comfortable. Something's not right. And um, car salesmen are, are high pressure. But yeah, we have a right to say no to any of this. There's very few things in this world that we're stuck uh, saying yes to and, and carrying through. One of them might be a roller coaster once the 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 thing is on us, right? Like we're, we're mm. off and chucking up the track and you can't change your mind halfway through. But you know that on the front end, so which gets to the next one, which is informed. You have all the information. You know what you're getting into. And at any point where you learn additional information, you still have the right to change your mind. And if you're the other side that's holding back information, you're really not operating on consent. Yes. And that's the big one that they're, that we're, you know, talking about when we're talking about information in all aspects of consent is that um, you have, so if someone says, you know, I consent to be baptized, let's say, uh, and we'll talk about spiritual consent later on, but there's this kind of quiet thing where we don't know what happens if we say no, or let's say I am going to offer you this job opportunity. Also, I want to take you on a date. Okay. So like, it's one of those work, you know, sticky situations. Okay. So it's not clear what happens if I say no. Right. So anytime, if you're not clear about what happens, if you say no, you don't have full information. So that's actually the, the technical term of assent. So if you assent to something, it's because you are informed of what will happen, but you're not informed as, as for what won't happen or what will happen if you say no. So consent only happens if you have both sides of that story. What happens if I say yes? And what happens if I say no? And if you only know what happens when you say yes, um, then it's assent and it's not considered full consent because you don't know the other side of that story. 
Yeah. And and anytime your agreement to do one thing hinges on something else and like, like I'll suddenly, if I go like, Hey, let's, let's, um, I'm going to, I'm going to make you orange juice. Do you want some? And you go, yes. And I say, okay, well, here's the orange juice, but I, I mixed it with raspberry tea. Uh, <laughs> or you mix it with vodka. <laughs> right. And suddenly you go like, you know, I, I, I agreed to the orange juice. I didn't agree to this other thing. Now that I know this other thing, I get to back out. And the person who's withholding the information is being unhealthy and uh, to be frank, abusive by not giving somebody the full story. We shouldn't trick people into doing things. Um, Dirty Heads is my favorite music group. And there is an online concert they had during COVID. And the two uh, main members of the band, the two vocals, uh, one of them in front of the entire crowd says, you know, this guy over here, he's trying to give up. And I don't know what it was, smoking or drinking, whatever it was. And he's he's promised that he's going to go six months uh, and not do these things. And if he if he fails at that, I say he should cut his hair, right? And there's that idea of like telling somebody else what they should do if they don't carry through on some part A. And you don't have a right to tell people what happens if they do or don't do their own personal agreements with themselves. You don't have a right to suggest that someone else should get something or suffer something um, in these kinds of situations. People deserve to make up their own mind without feeling the pressure. Um, the next one here out of fries was enthusiastic. It's this idea that yes doesn't necessarily mean yes. When it comes to sex, for instance, you should do stuff you want to do not the things you feel you're expected to. And so what you should be looking for in areas of um, sexual consent is that somebody is uh, clearly excited to participate in the act that's about to happen. And if they are reserved, uh, if they are reserved, uh, there's that. If they are um, any hesitancy, if they look like they're going along or that's the words they're using, you should be seeking some sort of enthusiastic consent. Yeah. And, let me, and, let me put yeah, in please. here. Uh, I, this just reminds me of something. So Cami Hurst is a sex therapist that lives in Boise and she um, does, you know, excellent thing, provides excellent resources here. But one of the things that she said is that when it comes to enthusiasm, the queer community is really leading in this space because there's just a language, because there's such a wide variety of sexual expression in the queer community, at the very beginning of relationships, it's often has to be talked about, what are you into? What do you like? What do you like exploring? What are you really not into, right? Because there's such, it's, it's just known that, hey, this is a wide spectrum of both gender and sexual expression, that those conversations have to come really early. Um, and so the queer community is really leading the way on how to, um, really structure those conversations. And where where we're finding where those conversations are the worst is in any kind of patriarchal religion where women are expected to hold the gaze of their husbands, right? Because then there's an expectation with sex that uh, in order to keep your husband from cheating on you, you're responsible to please him, right? And whenever you get that kind of expectation mixed in with sex where you lose the female, where you lose natural enthusiasm, that's where we're finding where enthusiasm for sex is the lowest. 
And so we have this big difference where the queer community is really leading the way on how to how to structure these conversations where you're asking each other what you're enthusiastic about and and patriarchal religion, which really struggles because the conversations are just so different where it's where it's expected that the male is always the high sexual performer and it's expected that women need to keep their husbands um, happy and all that kind of stuff. And that just messes, that just messes sex up a lot. And so it's really interesting to see how different those conversations go uh, in queer relationships and in relationships where there's patriarchal religion involved, especially biblical religion involved. Yeah. Love it. Uh, and then the last one here on fries was specific saying yes to one thing, like going to the bedroom to make out doesn't mean you've said yes to everything or anything or other things. And so um, people in, in, as we, again, those who are experiencing sexual experiences, whoever you're with in that experience, both sides need to communicate in such a way that each side understands what is happening, what's going to happen next, touching base and checking in to make sure the person's okay with the things that are going on. And, and this is a big deal. Um, you know, sometimes people are under the influence of something, whether it's drugs or alcohol. And they, you, you know that they are inebriated or their consciousness is altered to some extent. And yet in the midst of that, uh, you assume just because they're okay with everything that they're okay with everything. And the reality is that if somebody doesn't have their full wits about them, then you're not operating uh, in a space of consensuality. Um, and so I think everyone needs to be extremely careful because yes, doesn't necessarily mean yes. I listened to a podcast, I think it might've been Radiolab. And the conversation was... Um, the converse, and I'm looking over at our comments. We've got some things that aren't really healthy in there, and I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to block them while I keep my train of thought together. But in this podcast, the woman, uh, a man that she knew that she was interested in, came to her dorm, knocked on the door. She let him in. From the way she even tells the story, everything outwardly would have been that she was giving him consent. And he thought he had consent, and they ended up having a sexual experience together. But what the podcast was delving into was that in her head, she actually felt manipulated, and she didn't, she wasn't comfortable, and she wasn't okay with what happened. And so the conversation ensued about what yes means and what no means and how consent works. And the reality is, if you're a halfway decent human being, there has to be conversation and communication that takes place that clearly establishes what is going on is wanted and and wanted by both parties. Any thoughts there? Yeah, I just go back to just um, what Cammie was talking about, about just how how the queer community is just really leading the way in this space. And we have a lot to learn from that community. They have a lot to say in this space that we could all learn from. Mm, yeah. Yep. And um, let me grab the next thing here. So uh, consent does not look like this. Refusing to acknowledge no. Again, hey, baby, it's cold outside. Mm -hmm. a, a partner who's disengaged, non-responsive, visibly upset, uh, assuming that certain styles of dress or flirting or kissing, for that matter, or anything beyond that is an invitation for anything more. Sometimes people just want the thing that's going on at the moment that they gave consent to and they don't want to do the next thing. And so being clearly aware of that, uh, someone being under the legal age of consent, uh, someone being incapacitated because of drugs, alcohol, we talked about that, and assuming you have permission to engage in sexual act because you've done it in the past, just because you and so-and-so made out last night doesn't mean that it's wanted tonight. Mm -hmm. And so there's lots of little things to kind of keep in mind. Um, I think we can all, in all facets of our life, I think all of us can do a better job of ensuring that consent, real consent is taking place. One of the things that we talked about kind of adding late to the outline 
and we can spend some time here is religious consent. Um, what are your thoughts there? What are some of the things that have been kind of rumbling around in your head? Yeah, this one. So, of course, I always want to dive into, well, how does this relate to spirituality? Because that's just the place where I like to play. And I really <clears throat> like to think a lot about religious and spiritual consent in the work that I'm doing. So I'll give an example of a client that I had just this week. And this client was uh, a bishop's wife and Relief Society, blah, 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 uh, for 20 years and had recently kind of deconstructed and was doing her own thing. And she had this case where she just felt like she should, I should be serving more. If I was a good person, I should be engaging in a community. I should be X, Y, Z. She just kind of had this thought loop, like I should be doing something. I should be, if I was good, I would be doing X. And when I really dug into what was driving these shoulds, and why she just had this inner tension. She had a lot of inner tension. It was really because um, for 20 years, she was not giving consent, mm. full consent. Yeah. And so those 20 years that she was going to church and participating religiously, uh, she had to quiet parts of herself, push parts of herself down, shh, quiet, mm. quiet, quiet, quiet. And in that sense, religiously, it's a form of, of spiritual or religious rape where you're being abused and you just kind of push down your your uh, conscious conscience against it and you continue to go because uh, because of power imbalances, because you don't think that you can say no, because um, of all these things, right? And so she was really struggling with this space of why don't I want to, anytime she's in a community and they invite her to come, her body instantly goes into a state of, I don't feel safe. And so I had to, I, we had to talk about consent this week and about by you going for so many years without full consent, right? It was a kind of, it was a kind of self-abuse. It was a kind of spiritual abuse. And so when you sense that someone wants you to join their whatever new club is, there's a there's that inner part of you that says, absolutely not. And she felt like there was something wrong with her. Why don't I want to go with this service group and do this thing? Why don't, why, if I was a better person, I would go do this thing. And so what I really wanted to do is give her permission to say, think about it as if it was a, if it was a sexual assault case. People who uh, have a sexual assault, if you touch their bodies afterwards, their bodies will recoil, right? Something happened to my body and I'm not okay with someone else touching me. And that can last for a long time. And so when you're talking about 20 years of not consenting, but still going to church, feeling like you have to, that's a long time, right? And so the healthiest thing for her to do in that space is give herself permission to say no for a while give herself permission to put up really strong boundaries and that that was healthy. Just like if you were in a sexually abusive scenario, the healthiest thing to do afterwards is maybe not allow people to touch your body for a while. Right. And so looking at her this week and thinking and working with her this week really brought up in my mind, a lot of these issues about um, spiritual consent and that when you're talking about, um, building something together, especially building something as a community. Um, just like in sexual relationships, it's a lot more beautiful when year after year you are building something together. You're building a pleasure castle together. R spiritual and religious communities operate the same way. They can operate without consent and they can also operate 
um, where everybody is showing up authentically and wanting to build something together and that there's a big difference between those two. And we often don't talk about mm -hmm. consent in terms of spirituality and religion and what that looks like. And so when you're going through the list of were you fully informed, could you say no? What happens when you say no? When you went through that fries list, it's really important if you are in a religion or recovering from religion or thinking about uh, joining a spiritual community or thinking about your own spirituality, it's really important to go back and look, did I have consent? Did I have consent, true consent to enter into that? And if you didn't, to really be aware of that so that you can begin to reclaim your religious and spiritual power of consent. Yeah. I love it. What um, comes to mind when I, yeah. What comes to mind there for you? So there are a couple personal stories. One is the system that we came from you and I, there's, there's this special building set aside where you and I would go and perform certain rituals uh, within the religion that we came from. And there's a moment, the very first time you walk into that building, uh, you sit down with people that you care about, your family and friends, and they're there to support you as you receive these rituals for the very first time. And you're about to make really big promises. You're about to uh, promise to to be obedient to certain commandments. You're, you're going to promise to be willing to give anything and everything uh, to the building up of the of the kingdom. And prior to you making any of those promises, somebody announces that this is the moment where you are able to leave under your own free will and choice. And the reality of that moment is it's twofold violation of consent. The first one is that there's coercion going on. You, you've you driven a long way. You, um, you're, uh, you're with your family. You're with people that you care about. There is an expectation that certain things are going to happen today. You didn't know what to expect and to be told what's going to happen only moments before it does on one level is deeply unethical, abusive, it's egregious. But it's not just that. It is that the promises you're about to make, you won't know until you decide to stay for the rituals. <laughs> and so it's not informed consent on one level. And on the second level, it's very coercive. They could have, they, this system could have fixed the problem very easily by sitting down with you at home long before you're going to make that trip and say, when you go to this, here are the exact things you're going to promise. You will be given a moment before that, that if you don't feel good about it, you are free to leave. But these are the things that you're going to be asked to commit to. By being asked to commit to them before you know what the commitment is, it's like, look, I've got a contract for you. I want you to sign it, but you can't read the contract until after we're done. And all yes. of us in the entire world. And if world, you don't sign it, you lose your eternal family forever, yeah. which is a threat. That, yeah. that would be considered a spiritual threat. That would be the same as someone saying, you have to have sex with me or you're going to lose your job, right? Yeah. It, that's a pretty big threat. And so in this religious circumstance, we don't necessarily see it, but if we were to apply the same principles as you're pointing out, and as I'm pointing out, if you apply those same principles to any other thing going on in your world and had time to sit with it, you'd go like, no, like it, would, it doesn't make sense to sign a contract until after I read everything. And, and yet, for some reason, in our religious world, we allow people and systems to violate those um, modes of consent, because again, we've never been taught how to utilize it and how to implement it in our life. The, another example I thought of was a more general one that I think everyone can relate to. It's the sacrifice uh, where Abraham goes to try to sacrifice Isaac. And I've heard various religions, including the one that you and I came from, articulate this as if 
Isaac is giving Abraham consent for what's about to happen. But there's two problems with the story. And I think everybody will be able to relate to this. Um, let me find it here. Uh, Abraham took the wood. Let me see here. Uh, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son, Isaac. And he carried the fire and the knife as the two of them went together. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? It becomes obvious from the story that Isaac doesn't have a clue what's about to happen. So the idea that, um, that Isaac consented is, to be frank, it's bullshit. And then Abraham answered, God himself will provide a lamb for the burnt offering. So there is a deception. He is tricking Isaac into thinking that there is going to be something there to sacrifice. And, it's, and Isaac has no idea that it's going to be him. And it says the two of them went together. Um, so there's an, so again, we have this lie and we've got this kind of uh, misdirection. It says when they reached the place that God had told him about, this is in Genesis 22, by the way, when they'd reached the place that God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. And he bound his son, Isaac, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And I just want to note here, even if you're willing to somehow accept some stretch story that Isaac on the front end consented, the reality is the moment that Abraham binds him, the only reason we bind somebody is because even if they consented on the front end, we do not want to allow them to change their mind on the back end of whatever's going on. So if Abraham, if Isaac really did agree to this, you don't need to bind him. He'll just lay there and allow it to happen. And if the moment the knife is pulled out or the moment the sharp object makes contact with his skin, he decides to bail, he should be free to do so. And as you're pointing out, it's happening in religious systems all the time in the modern moment. And, and I'll share one more, and I'd love to get maybe any other examples from you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In the system we came from, they don't baptize you until you're at the age of eight years old. And they call that the age of accountability. But the reality is, and again, when they say age of accountability, they're essentially saying the age of a consent. Like you are now old enough to make your own decisions and to agree to do these things. And our system said the age of eight as if it fixed the problem. And it would mock other religions that baptized infants or young people. And it tried to say like, those guys are unhealthy. They're baptizing infants. Certainly an infant can't make a decision. Meanwhile, changing the age to eight years old doesn't fix the problem. You still have a child who, for a whole host of reasons, is unable in legitimate ways to give consent. For the first and foremost reason, they don't have enough life experience. They don't understand how the world works. They don't understand what saying yes or saying no even means in the simplest of, of ways. And so they're still trying to figure out like, what is what is the way in which we all interact with each other and, and what do we agree to and what don't we agree to and how does all this work? They're clueless to the world at large and still trying to put much of that together. There are a whole host of other reasons, uh, legal issues with age. Um, you and I, in the podcast we listened to yesterday, uh, there are issues with our brain's frontal cortex not being uh, completely established yet and, and mature. Um, there's just a whole host of reasons. And yet religious systems seem to, at a very young age, get you to agree to go along with the whole thing without you really having the understanding that you can back out. And part of the problem is you have your very own parents often who are insisting that this is the way we do things. Yeah. Okay. So I had a lot come up there. So stay with me. So let me go back um, to the temple example first and just share something from my personal life. And this is something that I've heard Natasha Helfer part 
Natasha Helfer talk about um, a renowned sex therapist about how dangerous it is to bring people into a marriage. And I remember this when I got married, that the language that married, that married my husband and I, I did not see or consent to until it was being said, right? Which is extremely manipulative. And then the language was that I give myself to my husband and my husband receives me. That's the language, right? This very patriarchal, biblical kind of language. And even then, um, you know, at 19, I felt icky, right? I felt I didn't know that I was promising that I'm giving myself to my husband, but he's not giving himself back to me. I didn't know that I was, that that was what was happening. And I tried for years to like wrestle with this and, and, uh, and see, is there a way I can, you know, make sense of this? But this whole time I felt violated and it was a violation of my spirituality. And it was a violation really of the relationship that my husband and I were building that was not built on this idea that I'm giving myself and he's receiving me. That's not what I signed up for. And so one of the really important things and something that I work with clients a lot is not only to recognize that lack of consent, but also to find ways to reclaim it. So for a lot of people who have um, deconstructed and who are looking around at their relationships, it's very common to do something like a vow renewal, which is a really beautiful way of saying when you and I started this, the language that started our relationship wasn't consensual and didn't represent what we were signing up for. I was not enthusiastic about building a relationship where I give myself and you receive me. I didn't sign up for that. So let's now, you know, and then I'm angry and you go through that phase where you just have to set boundaries, but then choosing then to come back and say, but I do care about this relationship and I'd like to put new words to it. I'd like to consensually say what this marriage is, what this relationship is to me. It's a beautiful way of noticing lack of consent, consent, but also recreating and rewriting that story by entering into that relationship again, maybe a second time or a third time or a fifth time and say, this language represents this relationship to me now. And that can be a really beautiful part of claiming, reclaiming relationships and spirituality and all kinds of things. Right. And so for Abraham and Isaac, you know, that one is so tricky because I've read, you know, thousands of apologetic ways to make sense of this really difficult, difficult parable. And the one that, you know, you always get people on is if you ask someone, okay, if you're in a prayer and God tells you to kill your son, do you do it? And most people say no. So it's this really weird thing that, you know, we're trying to make sense of this, this, this parable, but when it comes down to, would you do it? People's consciences speak up and say, no, I probably still wouldn't do it. (laughs) So that tells us that, hey, then there's something wrong going on here. If your conscience is saying, no, I wouldn't do that, then there's something wrong, right? And that's the way that I can often open people up to maybe thinking about this parable a little bit differently. And then as far as baptism, this is one I see so often. I mean, how often do you go on Facebook and you see my child, it can be anything. It can be in any religion. My child chose to be baptized and they have a picture and they're holding some kind of scripture as if they like have read it a thousand times. They like barely read. Right. And you know, it's this thing. Do you have a choice when someone tells you, are you going to get baptized and we'll have a big party for you and you'll be so special or not baptized And sometimes they don't even give an option for what happens if you don't get baptized, but it's kind of implied that you're not going to be able to go to heaven with your family. That's going to be the message that they're getting at church. Um, 
is that, and at eight years old, where you still probably believe in Santa Claus and maybe the tooth fairy, is that really, are they really choosing to be baptized? And it's like, you know, most adults, if you ask them, did you really understand what you were signing up to be on the records of the church the rest of your life? Were you really understanding what that meant? And no, I just, you know, it seemed like a fun party for me. And you know, seem like everybody else did it. That that that's pressure. That's a lack of consent. You know, that's a lack of um, showing options. And what happens if you say no? And what happens if you go to the baptism and you decide it's not for you? I've never seen a kid ever. I've never even heard of a kid who shows up at their baptism and says, "This isn't for me." There probably is one. I would love to speak to that person. But because it's never been modeled that you're even allowed to do that right? There's no language around consent in that scenario. And so you really have to go back. If you're someone who's recovering from religion, you really have to go back to all of these um, rituals and rites and experiences and spiritual experiences and say, and really look at the consent there and really begin to reclaim whatever was taken from you without consent. And that's a big part of healing. Yeah. I um, I, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking about all the ways in which my religious system attempted to get me to agree to things that I wasn't completely on board with. And as you're talking about some of that, um, the, the three things that come up are coercion, manipulation, and deception. If, if you're not making it safe in a religious system for somebody to say no, if it is such, it's so weighted, the pressure is so significant in them having to say yes and go along with it, that's not real consent. If you are shifting the story or um, insisting that along with this thing comes other things, for instance, hey, there's going to be a big party afterward. You're, you're manipulating the situation. If there's manipulation present, it's not real consent. If you're withholding information or you're not telling the full story about the information you are giving, it's not consent. That's deception. And me... So while somebody might agree and they might go through with the thing you asked them to do and you think, oh, I got consent, they said yes. The reality is if coercion, manipulation, or deception are present on any level, then you didn't really have consent and you were being deeply unhealthy in negotiating uh, in your mind them to get them to do the thing you wanted them to do. And and so you can really feel it. I'll, I'll give an example I was going to give this at the end, but I'll give an example. And it's such an easy one. And, and it's not tied to any of this stuff. I, I went to a party uh, three or four weeks ago and there were people there I knew and there were people there I didn't. And the way they structured this party was this uh, one guy uh, has a karaoke, not a very high-end karaoke machine. He's got the microphones. He sets up the karaoke and there's a room of 40 people. And the first four or five people are really talented. They've got great voices. They're confident in themselves. They're up there dancing and singing, and they did great. So there's four or five karaoke performances. Suddenly, the rest of us don't really have an interest. We don't sound as good. We're shy, whatever the reason. And this this guy who put all this on, he he walks up and he goes, okay, everybody, the people who wanted to sign up, signed up. Um, it's time for the rest of you to sign up. And if you don't, then I'm going to start volunteering people. And I had this feeling in me that was like, ooh. And immediately I said, ooh, that's not consensual. Like, you don't get to volunteer me to stand on a stage and perform in front of people. And immediately, for the, again, for the first time probably in my life, I'm connecting the feeling inside myself with whether something is consensual or not. And I know it now. If any point in my world now, 
somebody tries to violate that principle, I know what that feels like. I know what emotion is going on. I know what's going on inside my gut and I can easily connect it to that. And and if any of you out there, if you can relate to moments where somebody committed you to doing something that you didn't want to do, then you recognize what non-consent feel. It feels like an abuse against your very being. And, and so we need to be careful of that. Um, I was also noting to you last night, we were talking a little bit through text messages. It seems as though no unhealthy system will teach you healthy consent. It runs counter mm-hmm. to what they're trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. And so in, in our religious system, Mormonism, for instance, never, like, like if there's a healthy religion, certainly consent would be taught. And yet here you have this faith that never, ever approaches teaching its members consent. Like in the gospel principles book that we used in a Sunday school lesson, in a talk during the service, in uh, the times where the church gives its members lessons to present to people in their homes when they go to visit them once a month and check up on them. Consent seems to me like it would be such an obvious thing that all systems would teach. But for the listener, for the viewer here, recognize which systems don't teach you consent and Begin to maybe ask yourself why, like if consent's not taught, what's the reason for that? And maybe you'll start to pick up on the ways in which it violates consent. And we were debating whether this is intentional or not. I think some of it is, and you were pushing back and go, some of it isn't. I wonder if maybe you might go into that for a moment. Yeah, um, that's interesting. So what I think about when I think of spiritual consent, let me go back to some of our text messages because you were, you were yeah. pointing to the idea that just a group of people that don't understand consent that are often yeah, trying okay. to hide that's, Yeah, that's where I was going. So what I, what I sense whenever you ask, so let's talk about a parent who never lets their kid anything. Like I don't give my kid any choices because if I let them have choices about what to have for lunch, they'll choose candy. So for the entire time that they're in my house, they have no choices about food, right? Or about, about anything. And so when you dig into why people don't con- give consent, the reason the reason behind that is often if I give you consent, you're going to go away. You're going to make a wrong choice. You're going to whatever. It's fear driven. And so a lot of times we talk about, um, I like to talk about religions as both top down and bottom up because I do think it's genuinely unfair to say that religions were a couple of powerful men and they took over the world. I think that that's unfair. And the reason I think that's unfair is because there's something about human nature where when someone, especially someone in authority says, I've got the answers, we want to give our moral compass to that person because life is hard and it's messy and it's gray. And so when someone comes with surety and says, I really know that we're going to live after we die or whatever. It's, it's not just power from the top down. There's a power because we create Kings. We create prophets. We want someone to tell us how to do life because life is just so damn hard and we're thrown into this universe and it's confusing. And to have your own moral compass to have to make your own moral code, to have to forge your own path through life that is unique to you. That is hard. It is hard stuff. And so when someone says, I have the path for you, just do all these things and you'll be saved. It's often that it's not entirely that they're taking consent. There's also times where we give consent, where we give our consent away so that someone will tell us how to structure our life 
Give us some order when we feel chaos. Give us some security when we feel insecure. Give us some solace when we're grieving about death. So it's both a top-down, you know, there, there are ways that religions specifically try to limit consent. And I think that those are mostly fear-driven. If we give you consent, you're going to choose you're going to choose something wrong, like the mother who doesn't let their kid ever choose their food, which will backfire because eventually when the kid leaves the house, they'll only eat candy because they've never learned my body wants an apple right now. They've never learned that because they've never been given a choice, right? So there is top down, but there is also bottom up, which is that people will willingly give away their consent in order to feel the security that religion provides. And so when you're talking about reclaiming consent, there is, um, there is responsibilities for organizations to model that, but then there's also responsibilities for individuals to claim that because individuals often give that away willingly in order for someone, someone give me a story to pattern my life because life just feels really hard without that. I understand that impulse. That's a very human impulse. Life is hard and it's messy. And so you have to do both. You have to model things in society and individually. You have to practice claiming that, yes, life is hard and forming my own life is hard. But the only person who's in charge of my life and my choices and my consequences is me. And you have to do those both in order for there to be real, real consent from top to bottom. So what comes to mind there, Bill? I'm just going to take a second here. There, oop, there, oh, we, there go. we go. So at what point does the expectation of consent go too far? And we were talking about this before we went on the air that there is, there is an extreme that isn't healthy either. It says, is aversion uh, equated to non-consent? Learning to play soccer may identify varying levels of aversion to different people. So change the sport, question mark. And, and I essentially think, again, I might be wrong. I think that what the question is, we all have things we like and things we don't like. How do we negotiate, and specifically maybe children – but I think it applies everywhere. How do we negotiate what we, how we encourage someone to do something, where we say someone has to do something? There obviously are moments in this world where we have to overtake. I'll give an example. I'm driving down the road and I'm not paying attention and I'm about to hit something and my wife grabs the wheel, right? She didn't ask consent. She just, she just moves in to avoid adding additional harm and trauma to the world. And it had to be done quickly. And there isn't a chance to really talk about it. And there are all kinds of varying degrees of that in this world where we don't really have the chance to talk about things. Or even if we do, there are still things that have to be done, even if we don't like them. Your thoughts on how, and again, this might be a little more messy. How, how do we navigate and negotiate where consent applies and where it doesn't? Yeah. Thoughts? So I, whenever I have these things where you have competing ethics, right? And uh, I, I really like Aristotelian ethics, which is this idea that um, ethics kind of lies in between two extremes. And uh, so you often think of in history, you think of a pendulum. And if we start going too far one way, it'll kind of start swinging back the other way. And so there is, I think, a danger of too much consent. You could imagine, for example, a sexual experience where someone says, can I kiss you? And then you kiss and then can I kiss you again? And then it, like, it becomes so awkward that it's like we've lost all magic yeah. here. Yeah. And so you can imagine those situations where you're so careful about getting informed consent that you have to give the kids some paperwork to sign it before you move them out of the street and take their body and move them, right? Or whatever the situation is. So, so yes, Yes, you can go too far. My only pushback to that is that uh, we're, 
when you're talking about something like the Me Too movement, where men specifically in job scenarios are having to realize how women for centuries have had to allow sexual comments and sexual passes because their job security was tied to it and we're really seeing it. This is a couple years ago. Like, you know, we're so far on this pendulum, especially for consent for women and sex. We are so far from going too far the other way that I'm not at this stage worried about, am I asking for too much consent? Because it's just, we're still very early in religion, in work environments, in sexual relationships. I mean, we're all, you know, you're, you were saying that this language wasn't modeled for you. It certainly wasn't modeled for me. So if we're just barely learning about this consent language and we're trying to model this for our children, um, we're pretty safe from saying, this is too much consent. We're not there yet. Maybe there'll be some day where we need to pull back and say, hey, we're getting a little bit um, maybe too, politi too politically correct or it's becoming so, you know, it's becoming almost absurd, the level of, you know, can I kiss you? Can I kiss you again? You know, that kind of stuff. But when you're talking about thousand years, thousands of years where consent, especially women and children consenting, not being modeled at all, I feel like we're a long way away from that problem. So I'm okay just working on the side of we need to um, keep working on building this consent language because it's not, it's not, um, it's not really part, you know, these conversations are so early. They're just beginning. Like we think of me too, as if it was like a hundred years ago that we're having to talk about consent in the workplace. And no, this was like, you know, two years ago. So we have some time to work on this before we can be worried about, is this swinging too far the other way? Which I do think that there is that. I just don't think that we're there yet. We're, I don't think we're anywhere close to that. Yeah. And the only other thing I would add to that in my head, when I go like, where do we draw the line? I'm, I'm often inside my head going like, if I'm manipulating you, and again, if I grab the steering wheel in some sort of way, I'm manipulating the situation, I'm manipulating you. If I'm doing it to bring something to me rather than just overall good outside of myself, right? Like if my motives are like, hey, I'm going to trick this person into doing this thing so that I get this thing from it. Anytime my motives are to benefit me, but I'm manipulating someone else, I'm probably need to stop and pause and consider that. My hesitation in saying that though is often systems and people will pose their motives as altruistic. They'll say, hey, I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to bring you the blessings of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you can't get inside of a system's head and you can't even get inside another human's head. So I want to stop shy of going like, that's the way we deem what's good and what isn't. Because unfortunately, too many people are wording what their motives are, not genuinely to what's actually going on inside their head. Yeah, and, and so I do, I do have... And I do have one more comment since since the question brought up a sports question, like a sports question, like let's say you have a kid who consents to try a sport and then every time they quit, right? Because I don't want to anymore. And so you're just following the kid and they sign up for something and then they quit. And so like they're consenting. Is that okay? Like how is, is that too far? You know, that kind of question. And so sitting with this analogy, I think the really important key there for if you have a child who always says, I don't want to, I don't want to go to school. I don't want to go I don't want to sign up this for it, even though I said I would do it. Right. And as a parent, you have to wrestle with like, okay, what's the happy medium here? Um, I think the really important key is why, right? So if a, if a child is getting baptized because 
there's all these lacks of consent that we talked about, then that's problematic. If a child is uh, not going to play soccer because they want to play video games, right? And they uh, and you dig into that, and then you say, you know, why you don't want? Why don't you want to go to soccer? Oh, I'm uh, I'm afraid of the ball touching me, or I don't know. I'm afraid of something, and it's 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 a fear that that as a parent is your responsibility to help your child um, overcome this fear, right? Those are really two, those are two really different things. And so we have to dig into, well, why is consent, especially when dealing with children, why is consent not being given here? Is it because the child really feels uncomfortable and didn't understand what was going on and wasn't able to make an informed choice? Or is it because they wanted to play video games and, or they're afraid of a ladybug and it's something you have to, as a parent, okay, we need to model, uh, we made a commitment to this team and we're going to go until the season's over. I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. I think it's really digging into why are you consenting and why are you not consenting and making sure your child has that language and then encouraging, you know, based on the situation. That's what's so hard about parenting is that uh, you're dealing with teaching your children consent, but you're also dealing with uh, you made a commitment to this team and we paid money for it, you know? So you have to always be wrestling with all these uh, different ethics. And that's what ethics is. We're always having to wrestle with all these issues at once. And so the only way I can say, you know, how to solve those issues is really to dig into why, why are we consenting and why are we not consenting? And that hopefully will give you some insight as to how to approach that situation. But those are hard. That's what makes parenting so dang hard for sure. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. If you're a if you're a good human being who takes consent seriously, you're constantly wrestling with these things in all these aspects of life. You should be constantly yeah. thinking in your head about this kind of stuff. And uh, you mentioned, you know, we mentioned kids and sports. <coughs> this this really hit home with me in juxtaposing my parenting my children with how I am being a grandparent to my grandson and how I'm treating my own kids now as an adult, where they're adults, I'm older, I've got more experience. And it's the little things. When when I was a young parent, if I wanted a hug or a kiss from my child, I just walked up to my kid, picked him up, gave him a hug. And sometimes kids are not in the mood for it. They're starting to push away. And I just squeezed in tighter and gave them the hug, gave them the kiss. And as I've learned and taken time to better understand the principle of consent, um, now when my grandson comes over, he's two years old, I say, hey, grandpa would like a hug. Would you like a hug? And sometimes he goes, no. And I go, okay, and that's it. I move on. Um, I, I'll, I'll, he'll come and uh, want to give a kiss. And then the moment I go to pick him up, he wants to pull away and not do it. At that point, I don't force it. Like consent should operate at the youngest of ages on up. And we should give children the freedom and over their own bodies to determine when they kiss somebody and when they hug somebody. And, and if we teach them that they just have to hug grandma because she's grandma, you are already beginning to wear down some of that intuitiveness that children have that will, will put them in unsafe spaces later on in life where things can go wrong. And, and so maybe in these situations, we, we err on the side of, of allowing these kids to have control over their own bodies and not teaching them that they just have to cave in because someone is an authority position, because someone is a family member, because someone is your friend. Um, children need to develop and be encouraged to um, feel out that sense within themselves that they don't want or do want 
certain kinds of contact from the very people that we expect it to happen with. Yeah. And I'm going to, I'm going to take a moment and praise myself and then embarrass myself because something I've read that before, you know, that you can model consent language when you're talking about hugs and kisses. And the beautiful thing that comes from that, that I think is not talked about enough is that even though kids will say, no, I I don't want to hug and I don't want to kiss when you get one that is, uh, really because they're consenting to, it's a lot better and it feels a lot better than when you're wrestling a kid and giving them a hug and it's a wrestle hug that you want that they don't, right? And so that's the beautiful side of consent is it's not just what we're saying no to, it's that when the child consents to a hug and a kiss and an I love you, that's really from themselves. Um, it's so much more precious, right, than than when you're forcing it on them. And so that is, so for with my kids, that's something that I just got in the habit of modeling. Would you like uh, a wave or a high five or, or a kiss? Or um, would you like to give grandma a hug? And my, um, my in-laws are really great about knowing that they have a chance to say yes or no. And we, I really modeled this phrase in our home it's my body and it's my choice. And it'll come up sometimes, you know, a kid will push a kid because they're supposed to be putting their shoes on. And I say, no, 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 we don't push other people's bodies. It's their bodies. It's their choice. And they'll have a consequence or whatever. So I've been giving them this language that do you want to hug? Do you want to kiss? It's your body. It's your choice. But then I go and I take my daughter to this hula class across town She's this beautiful Islander. She's five years old. She has these long hair. She looks like Moana. She's just gorgeous. Wanted to take her to this uh, hula dance class. And of course, in my idealistic mother brain, I want her to do this. Like, I think it would be so cute. I think it would be so fun. And without even thinking about it, she's uncomfortable from the second she steps in, she's uncomfortable and I'm pushing her through it. And eventually I start you know, dancing with her body and taking her arms and her hips and kind of trying to get her to move because I want her to do this hula class. And I just because I have this imagination that it would just be so cute and it would have been. But finally, she's just uncomfortable. She just she she just doesn't want to do it. She's just all of her body language, like just does not want to be there. And I was just was not listening because I'm trying to force this thing that would be so cute. And finally, she turns to me and says, it's my body and it's my choice. And it knocked the air out of me because I gave her that language. I tried to model that language for her and finally she was actually using it. So I was both um, embarrassed at my own behavior that I was doing something with her body that she didn't want to do when she repeatedly told me that she was uncomfortable and I violated that. And I was embarrassed because I just didn't see it as a consent situation. I just saw it as I really want you to do this because it would be really cute. But I was also so proud of her that in that moment, I've given her that language. It's my body. It's my choice. And that she was able to say that to me. This is my body. You cannot make me do the hula I don't want to do the hula. And so, yeah, when we give kids that language, um, you know, amazing things can happen when they really dis- when they really have that boundary and that language model that I can say that this is my body and I don't want to do this, right? So it, it is really powerful and, and kids can um, pick up on that language and apply it to a situation that I wasn't even applying it to, but she did on her own. Um, so yeah, it's something that I, I try to model, but 
I'm still learning myself and I'll still find myself being like, oh, that was a that was a consent thing. And I was trying to take that for sure. Yeah. And especially understanding that kids are trying to work out what what consequences are like if I don't get in my car seat then mom and dad don't get to leave and means I don't get to go and I don't get to go do the fun thing we're getting ready to do. They're still trying to figure all this stuff out. And we need to, at at every turn where we can, there are moments where we're late for something. We simply have to pick our kid up and put them in the car seat. But in the moments where it's not an emergency or it doesn't matter if if five more minutes go by, those are beautiful opportunities to teach them in really good ways. Like, there's consequences for what happens here. So if you don't want to get in the car seat, then we can't go to the park and helping them figure that stuff out. Um, I, I just know that when I, I've got this two-year-old grandson and I know that when I take the time to explain how the world works to him, he actually gets it. And I think kids are very a lot smarter than we give them credit for. We're often not explaining what's going on because they don't understand how the world works but they do understand it if you explain it to them. And I think often if you just explain things to kids, giving them to the space to control my body, um, they start to pick up these principles and it ends up being way better 10 years later, 20 years later, where they understand how consent works. My grandson understands consent better as a two-year-old than I probably did as a, as a 25-year-old. And um, we can, little by little, make the world a better place by understanding these principles ourselves when we didn't know them as our younger versions of ourselves, but we're now capable to give them to our children and our grandchildren and to others in the world. There have been moments in the last six months where something happened and I just said it out loud. That's not consensual. While something else is happening with two other people in the space that I'm in, uh, somebody, somebody tries to impose that somebody else do something. And instead of asking or instead of handling it in a healthy way, and I'll just say, like, that's not consensual. And it's a joke, but it causes everybody to pause and go like, oh, yeah, that that isn't, is it? And and so there are ways that we can help make the world a better place. And as you point out, it is messy. There, there are moments where we do have to compel the world to do something. There are moments where we do have to manipulate the world around us with healthy motives. But there is sure as hell way too much unhealthy manipulation, coercion, deception, and uh, a lack of consent. Yeah, and when... Two things come to mind there, just that when when kids are, when consent language is modeled for them, they pick it up so quickly because they don't have to often undo as much damage as, <clears throat> as some of us adults learning about consent. And uh, one of my nephews was watching, um, it was like a snow day, so they decided they would watch Gone with the Wind. And there's this moment where, um, oh, what's the main character's name? That's Suave character. Anyway, he uh, he takes Scarlet up the stairs and they're married. But at that time in 1930 or whenever that movie came out, uh, there was no such thing as rape in marriage. If you are married, there is no such thing as rape. Right. But the kid, the 16 year old who's watching this kind of was like he just kind of took her. He just like she didn't want to. And he picked her up and took her up the stairs like kind of kicking and screaming and he was uncomfortable by this and it it just goes to show you know that wasn't that was a hundred years ago where just the concept that there was even such thing as consent in marriage was a completely foreign just completely foreign no one batted it an eye um and now you know the kids are much better at picking up like hey that that wasn't okay and so i think that that's really interesting um and then the last thing i just want to say and then we can probably wrap up here bill is that uh, 
I think one of the things that we adults have to do where we weren't those children who had that consent, you know, language modeled for us is that you have to go back and reclaim and notice the places where you didn't have consent, whether that be medically or in the workplace or on this podcast where we talk about spirituality a lot, really spiritually. And the first stage of that is really to notice, notice that lack of consent. And as you said, now you're good, Bill, at noticing when your body's uncomfortable and someone's trying to uh, kind of attack your consent. But if you've been in a, a religion a long time where that feeling was called your natural man or it was called uh, rebellion or it was called just obey and you had to push that feeling down, it may take a while for you to actually notice and reclaim that feeling again because you've had to suppress it for so long. And so one of the first things to do is just to be angry and reclaim that boundary and find what that feeling is again because uh, it may have been suppressed. And then after that period of time where you're kind of healing and putting up boundaries, make that choice to step back into something consensual that really resonates with you. And that's the really beautiful part. So I'll give, I'll give one last example from my personal life. The temple for me was a really difficult place. I really felt uh, in multiple situations that there was a lack of consent. I didn't want to veil my face when it was happening. It felt icky to me. I didn't like my marriage language. Just there were multiple times where I had that feeling like I'm not okay with this. And for a long time, years and years, the idea of entering into another spiritual community or the idea of doing a religious ritual, um, I had a lot of triggers. I didn't want to. I felt uh, like someone who had a sexual assault, you know, and where you just, if you touch my body, if you touch me in this way, I'm triggered. But by noticing and reclaiming my inner voice, and then stepping back in consensually, um, you can have a totally different experience. So with one of my, and we'll, we'll invite this mentor onto the podcast soon. One of my mentors is a Sufi. And one of the things that they do when a Sufi mentor and a student decide to, um, you know, start a relationship where they're going to be a, you know, a student and mentor is they do a ritual. And in this ritual, uh, the mentor agrees to certain things and the student agrees to things. And uh, the mentor will also give the student a new name. And if I would have tried this right after kind of my faith transition 11 years ago, that would have felt deeply uncomfortable. I wouldn't have been able to do it. But after some time of rehealing and choosing to enter because in this ritual, I knew exactly what was being promised. I knew exactly who this person was. There was no power. There was no authority. There was no money. There was no manipulation. It was totally different how this ritual was approached so that I felt comfortable. And he drew, and he drew a winged heart, which is the, the symbol for Sufism on my forehead. And he gave me a new name. And not a name that, you know, it's just an automatic name, like, like it happens, you know, in our temples, but it was a name that by knowing me and thinking about me, this name reminds me of you. It may be helpful for you. And it was the name Rabia, which is a seventh century desert mother, a, a mystic from the Sufi tradition. And so there was a lot of similarities to the ritual from the temple. There was a new name. There were things that were agreed upon and not agreed upon. Uh, 
But if I would have tried that right after, I would have been too uncomfortable. But the beautiful thing is as you heal and as you as you reclaim your voice and your consent, you can begin to re-enter back into your relationships, in spirituality, in spiritual community, in medical and research and all the things that all the ways that we consent and don't consent in our lives. And when you do that uh, from a place of enthusiasm rather than being forced, uh, it really changes things and you can have really beautiful relationships, really beautiful spiritual communities, really beautiful religious relationships, uh, really beautiful things happen. But consent is what makes the difference between those two things, whether it's coerced and you have to push down your inner voice or whether it's not coerced and you're enthusiastic and consenting to enter into it. And so for anyone who feels like they're in that space where they feel really triggered, it's really okay to be in that space for as long as you need to be in that space. And then to enter back in consensually wherever you feel like you'd like to can be a really beautiful part of your healing too. Love it. I want to add just two quick things. Uh, when we talk about children, just one last point, I want to read the, the little thing I wrote here. Let your kid know that sometimes people may not feel, sorry, let your kid know that sometimes people may feel a little disappointed when we say no to them, but they'll be okay. It isn't your child's job to make themselves uncomfortable so that other people won't be. Mm. Grandparents, for instance, don't have a right to a hug or a kiss. It's okay. As an adult, I, I should be able to sit with the disturbance inside of me, my discomfort, much easier than a two-year-old kid can sit with theirs. Hence, it is my responsibility to sit with my discomfort, plus that person, as you pointed out, has a right to their body, their body, their choice. The last part I want to say is consent on its own may not be good enough, right? Somebody says yes, somebody says no, there may be a whole lot more going on. Consent on its own may not be good enough, and it may not even be good. For instance, sometimes people say yes because they're coerced, because they're manipulated, because they've been deceived, it's not consent at all. Informed consent requires that we give people as much of the available information and at a minimum point them to it so that they can go read it and study it and think about it and wrestle with it themselves. And enthusiastic consent um, to me means that there was this, there's this phraseology of opting in rather than opting out. Enthusiastic consent means that somebody is excited to participate in whatever it is that they are conveying their enthusiasm. They are opting in to the experience that's about to happen rather than opting out, which is, hey, do you want to do this? No or yes. It should be, hell yeah, I want to do that. It's going to be a blast. And, and as you point out, we can't, um, we can't make it so rigid that you have to check in every half second. But I think all of us should at least intuitively begin to grasp if we're thinking about this issue, we should be able to grasp like, Ooh, I'm pro I probably need to check in right now. I need to, I need to see that everything's okay. You can sense that maybe whatever's going on around you isn't clear. Like, yeah, they're doing this thing, but it's not clear. And anytime you don't feel like there's complete clarity might be a great moment to check in. Mm, that's a good one. Someone left a comment that would be a fun discussion for another day. Someone said circumcision intersects medical and religious consent. That's an interesting one. That's an interesting one to think about that, uh, you know, how many babies in hospitals were circumcised. And um, not only is there religious reasons behind that, but then there's medical issues as well, because it is technically um, genital mutilation in some way. And uh, I think that's a discussion that's happening, you know, parallel to this is, is why are we doing this? Why are we really doing this? And 
have we really has has everyone who's ever been circumcised really consented to it that we don't have time to go into all that the you know today but but the, that was a really interesting comment yeah there there are lots of permutations of this conversation and there aren't perfect answers for some of them but um yeah that probably but the discussion but the discussion's important right yeah. i don't remember even when i was making that choice for my son i mean it was just kind of always assumed that you would and not a lot of consent for what is it why why do it why don't and you know that wasn't that wasn't really laid out for me when i go back and think about that that choice in the hospital with my son so anyway all these all the you know there's lots of consent doesn't happen in a bubble there's there's other ethics going on there's lots of situations where we're talking about it but these discussions and this language and just being aware is what's you know going to help us drive change not that it isn't complex some of these issues are really complex but it's it's conversation that that changes the game yeah and um oh, i was going to say one other thing uh, oh yeah, the the podcast that you and I listened to yesterday, which I thought was beautiful, and it primarily focused on religious how consent and uh, I think consent uh, and coercion within a religious paradigm. I don't remember the exact title, but it was it did mention religion, it did mention consent and coercion. And my two senses, if you really want to sit with all the ways in which religion violates it, that was a great podcast to just sit and feel out and. Uh, you don't realize how pervasive it is until you do that. Yep. And if you need help and want someone to hold your hand as you delve into that messiness, I'm here for you as a spiritual director as well. So I think that's everything for me on my end, Bill, but that was a really interesting discussion. Okay. Don't have an outro today. We're just going to close out the episode. Appreciate everybody. If you want to see more conversations like this take place, go to almostawakened.org and click the donate button. And Britt, if people would like some life coaching, uh, where can they reach you? Uh, NoNonsenseSpirituality.com or my email, nnspirituality at gmail.com. I do spiritual direction coaching uh, in the afternoons while my kids are gone and when I'm not podcasting with Bill. And I just love this space in any way that I can help you. I'd be happy to. Awesome. Have a great day, Britt. All right. See ya.